just so everyone knows, I did not choose that poor little girl to be the scripture reader. Her father did, so. Oh, man. Nehemiah chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, as Bella said, on page 274. If you don't have your Bibles, you can use one of our pew Bibles. We're coming to the final chapter of this great story of Reformation led by Zerubbabel and then Ezra and then finally Nehemiah. And uh, as we find out uh, in chapter 13, there is always more work to be done. Uh, During the Reformation, there was a saying in Latin that went semper reformanda, which meant always reforming. The church should always be reforming. We never get to the point where we have arrived as God's people. As long as there is sin in the church, we must be reforming. And as long as you and I are in the church... There's going to be sin because we are sinners. And so we must always be reforming. And what we find out in verses 1 through 14 uh, is that we are to be intolerant people. Now, a lot of you might think, well, tolerance is a value. Well, actually, the Bible would say intolerance is a value. And specifically, there are certain people that we are to be intolerant of in our midst. And specifically, we're to be intolerant of sin in our midst. It's not something that we should accept It's not something we should just get used to. No, we must always be reforming the sin in our community. So we're going to look at that. But before we look at that uh, topic and how it applies to us, I want to look at what the text says. When we read the Bible, we should always say, what is it saying before we then go to, well, you know, how does it apply to us? So I'm going to look at what it says, uh, and then we are going to pray, and then we'll look at this topic of intolerance. And my allergies are acting up really bad today, so there's a good chance I'll sound like a 14-year-old boy going through puberty at some point when my, when my throat cracks. Do not laugh at me. All right, this chapter, the whole chapter, chapter 13, can be divided into four sections. And if you're reading your Bible, you'll notice these divisions, because at the end of each of them, Nehemiah prays a very short prayer, but it's very similar in each of them. Uh, these prayers are in verse 14, 22, 29, and 31. And a big theme in this chapter is in chapter 10... If you'll remember, they made three very specific vows. They say, God, these are the things we are going to do. And what we find in each of these sections is, guess what? (laughs) They have already broken each of these three vows. You know why? Because they're people like you and I. We make promises and we often do not keep them to God and to others. And that's exactly what's going on here. Now, today we're just looking at that first section, uh, verses 1 through 14. And within that section, there are four parts, four movements, four sections, however you want to break it up. Uh, In chapter 10, they vowed not to neglect God's house, and that's what we see they're neglecting in this part. They're neglecting the temple. They're not doing what they said that they would do. Uh, This section is kind of confusing, verses 1 through 14, because it's written backwards. Uh, So Nehemiah keeps saying, now before this, there was this, and before that, there was this, and before this, there was that. And it's kind of hard to keep track of it all in your mind. I think part of the reason for this might be because Nehemiah is literally just Nehemiah's journal. And I don't know if you guys have ever written a journal or maybe sent out a text message you shouldn't have. And you don't, you don't really think about what you're saying. It's just kind of a mental brain dump. And so you say things in kind of a weird order. That might be what's going on. Nehemiah might just be spazzing out as he writes here. But I think it also could mean uh, that Nehemiah did it on purpose because it, the people of God are going backwards. It's kind of a, a, a symbol of what God's people are doing. It's kind of unraveling everything. And Nehemiah is kind of writing, writing in an unraveling type of way. So I think that might be the possibility here. Either way, uh, I think it's okay. Uh, now, section one, so here, here's the way I'm going to go over them. I'm going to go over them in the way that they make sense because I have an ADHD brain, and so if I don't, I'll get distracted. So I'm going to go over them in the way that I think Nehemiah probably should have wrote them if it was chronology, uh, and you can fill in the blanks if you want. So section one is uh, chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, and what we see here is that Nehemiah has come back. If you'll remember, after he rebuilt the city, uh, he had to go back to King Artaxerxes. 
Uh, Artaxerxes only allowed him a certain amount of time to go back and help God's people. He had to come back and be the cupbearer. Uh, but he says, hey, can I go back and check on the people? And we know from chapter 7 that he left two men that he thought were faithful in charge. And so Nehemiah is just kind of bebopping along, hoping uh, that when he gets there, he's going to you know, be pleased at what he sees. I left these guys I trust in charge. I'm sure everything is okay. You know, it says every mother who leaves their children in charge for a while while they run out and get groceries. I'm sure everything will be okay. But as we know, it's not always okay. And Nehemiah finds something he does not like. Section 2, verses 4 through 5, he finds Tobiah, the bad guy, in the tithe room, the tithe chamber, the place where all of God's people's tithes are to be stored. (laughs) They've literally let the wolf into the sheep pen, the fox into the chicken pen, if you will. Uh, And the reason for, or what the cause of this is, after this, is we find out in verse 10, that this means that the Levites and the singers, who are supposed to be spending all their time with God's people, can no longer do that because Tobiah is living off the tithes of God's people. So they had to go back out into their fields. And this all happened... Because Tobiah's relative, Elishiab, was put in charge. So they put the bad guy's cousin in charge of the the temple. Now, section 3 is my favorite section. Verses 8 through 14 is my favorite section because Nehemiah goes MMA on these folks. Uh, I heard recently somebody said, don't let your cheese slide off your cracker. Well, Nehemiah's cheese slides completely off his cracker in this section. He goes in there, he kicks out Tobiah, he throws all of Tobiah's possessions out, and he lays it down to the Israelite people. It's kind of reminiscent of me, if, if you've ever, you know, you remember as a kid, you had something in your room you shouldn't have had, or, you know, your parents said clean your room, and your idea of cleaning your room was shoving everything under the bed and praying to God they didn't look. And then they look, and then the result is a tornado because your parents are throwing everything out of the room. That's kind of the image that goes through my mind as I think about Nehemiah here. He is going to town on these people in verses 8 through 14. And that leads us to the final section, which is actually the first section. I know it's confusing, but that's verses 1 and 2. It says, at that time. And I believe at that time is actually referring to what happens in verse 13. uh, When Nehemiah has come, come back and he's restored everything to the way it's supposed to be. Uh, And what they do is they read the word of God and they specifically point out a command that the people of God have broken. From Deuteronomy 23, I'll read it for you. This is Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. (laughs) So these people, even to the tenth generation, were not allowed to enter the assembly of God. And not only did these people allow them to enter the assembly of God, they've got one of them living in the tithe room. And the reason given for this, the reason why they're not allowed to enter it is because of a story uh, told in Numbers 22. And I'd encourage you to go back and read it. It's a funny story. Uh, Literally, God has a talking donkey in this story. So you can think of Shrek and donkey. That's what I think of when I read that story. (laughs) It makes the Bible really come to life. Uh, That's not what is the point of that text at all. The point of that text is the people, these people that are mentioned here, wanted to curse God's people. And so they hired Balaam, a prophet, to curse them. And God turned that curse into a blessing. God said, okay, if you want to curse my people, put the curse on them. And when they put the curse on them, the curse actually turns into a blessing. And now these people are excluded from God's assembly. Why? Because they're not good people. They are not here for the welfare of God's people. And these are the kinds of people that we ought to be intolerant of. And I think that's what we're to make of all of this. There's a slippery slope of tolerance. You allow a little bit of sin here, a little bit of sin there, and before you know it, you end up somewhere you never thought you would end up. That's true personally, and that is true in the church family. It's why the Apostle Paul says, a little leaven causes the whole loaf to rise. 
It only takes two or three people who have bad intentions in the church, two or three people who are sinning unrepentantly in the church for it to cause problems in the whole of the church. So that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we'll jump in. Father God, I need you. I need you uh, as I preach today because my allergies are hurting me. Uh, God, I need your grace to get me through this sermon. But Lord, I also need you because this is a hard text. It's hard for what our culture finds as valuable. Our culture wants to be accepting and inclusive and tolerant. And God, your word tells us that there are certain people and there are certain kinds of activities that we are to be intolerant of. We are not to be accepting. We are not to be inclusive when it comes to these things. We are to build walls and not bridges. And God, as a church family, uh, as a whole, not just our church family, but as a church family in the world, we are often, God, guilty of putting bridges where you want there to be walls. And putting walls where you want there to be bridges. So God, would you help us as your people? Would you help us discern sin in our own hearts and sin in our community? Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Amen. Amen. You can peel the text back uh, one by one. And if you just keep asking questions, you find out that it was just a little bit of intolerance that caused it. God's house was neglected. That was the end result. But if we ask how so, but we say the tithes were improperly handled. Well, how did that happen? Well, Tobiah had taken up residence in the storehouse. Well, how did that happen? The people of God abdicated leadership to Tobiah's relative. You ask, well, how did that happen? The people of God allowed Moabite and Ammonite temple access. How did that happen? And ultimately what you get down to is they didn't listen to God's word about the Ammonites and the Moabites. It's kind of like uh, the butterfly effect. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this, but uh, they, they say that a butterfly flaps his wings and there's a little cause, the, the, a ripple in the air that causes great winds somewhere else across the country. I don't know if it's true or not. Probably not. I'm not a scientist. But that's kind of the idea here. It's a little thing that causes a big uh, difference. Or my favorite book as a child, if you give a mouse a cookie, you know, you think it's just a little act, but then the mouse wants milk and then, the, you know, it goes on and so forth until the mouse has taken over the house. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. A little bit of tolerance. Just a little bit of tolerance is like putting grease on a slide that leads you to hell. <laughs> I mean, you just think, oh, this is not a big deal. No, it's a huge deal. And this is why God wants us to be intolerant of some things and of some people. In fact, I could make a better case that the church should aspire to be intolerant than I could that the church ought to be tolerant. Now, again, I know this is opposite of what our culture says. Good people are what? Good people are tolerant and nice. And in fact, this has slipped into the church. Some of you think being a good Christian means you are nice and tolerant. Some of you might think that being nice is in the Ten Commandments. And I would tell you, read them again. Because being nice is not in the Ten Commandments. Being tolerant is not in the Ten Commandments. You will not find it in God's Word. In fact, what you do find is that we are commended and we are told to be people who are sometimes intolerant of sin and of sinful people in our midst. I love what 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says. It talks about what we are to be as the people of God. It says, I write these things. This is Paul writing to his young protege, Timothy. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of tolerance. (laughs) That's not what it says, is it? The pillar and the foundation of tolerance. The truth. You'll notice there it doesn't say my truth or our truth. It says the truth because there's only one truth. All other truths that people build their lives on are, as Jesus would say, are sand that are shifting. When the storms come, the house blows away. There is only one truth and we are to stand for that truth. It is our foundation. And when we value tolerance over the truth, 
When we say, oh, well, this sin isn't so big. You just come on into our family or we'll allow this thing or we'll allow that thing. You know, we'll allow a little bit of gossip. We'll allow a little bit of envy. We'll allow a little bit of jealousy. What we're doing is we're allowing termites to eat away at the foundation of our church family. And then what we do is we wonder, we wonder why our foundation has crumbled because it all happens so fast. You can see this in society. You look at society, you look at the church as a whole, it feels like everything is changing so fast, doesn't it? It's just like, whoa, how did we get to such a pagan nation all of a sudden? But we didn't get there all of a sudden. What a termite does is not seen. So for a long time, everything appears to be going okay. But then all of a sudden, your foundation crumbles. Why? Well, because you've allowed tolerance here, tolerance there, tolerance here, tolerance there. A little bit of tolerance there adds up to a huge problem later on down the road. Uh, this is why the Bible often commends us to that when we are intolerant. Revelation 2.2, 2, this is Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus. And uh, he actually commends them for being an intolerant bunch of people. Look at what he says. I know your works, your labor and your endurance, that you cannot tolerate. You're intolerant of these evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you have found them to be liars. And Jesus says, good for that. Later on, uh, when he's talking to the church of Ephesus, he says, you have this one thing going for you. You hate the Nicolaitans, and I hate them also. You say, God loves everyone. Well, in one sense, he does. But there are some people God hates. And he says, I'm glad you hate those people also. You're like, oh, Blake, that's not nice. It's the Bible. I'm just, I'm reading the message to you. Uh, and then we see in Acts 17, 11, uh, the Bereans are commended for not being tolerant people. It says this, the people here, that's the Bereans, were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? Well, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In other words, Paul would get up and preach and they would say, we don't believe you, preacher boy, until we see it in the Bible for ourselves. We're not going to be so open-minded that our brain falls out. We are going to make sure that what you're saying is true. And by the way, friends, this is what you should do every single time you hear me preach. Don't just believe what I say because I have a microphone and I'm standing behind a pulpit. That's silly. You need to be intolerant at first. I hope you listen to me and you trust me as your pastor. But if what I say doesn't match up with what the Bible says, you go with the Bible. You don't go with me. Or when you see a, a Facebook preacher's clip shows up on your Facebook feed and it sounds good, don't just immediately share it because it sounds good. You need to be intolerant. You need to ask, does this match up with God's word? Because if it doesn't, I don't care how eloquent he is, he is a false teacher. And we don't want to spread false teaching and we certainly don't want to believe false teaching. And that's how the Bereans were. They were intolerant. They said, we're going to make sure what you're saying is true. We're going to make sure what you're saying lines up with God's word. Now, you might say, okay, Blake, that's fine. The Apostle Paul, he's, he's pretty intense. But what about Jesus? <laughs> Jesus is so tolerant and loving and inclusive and accepting. And he just ate cupcakes all the time and had a rainbow flag around him. Uh, at least that's what some people will tell you. If you look at who people think Jesus is, you know, they find it hard to believe that he would ever put together a whip and drive people out of the temple. And yet that's exactly what he did. And one of my favorite intolerant Jesus verses is Matthew 23, 15. Uh, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And listen to just how tolerant and inclusive Jesus sounds in Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. <laughs> I love it, don't you? How inclusive. You ever wonder what Jesus would say if the Mormons were to show up at his house and knock on the door? <laughs> Matthew 23, verse 15. Now, 
They don't ever knock on my door. I think they have like a, like they know where all the Baptist preachers live because they never show up. I'm waiting for them to show up. There is one place though in the Bible where we are called to be tolerant. That's not in my notes anywhere. 2 Timothy 4.2. Here's what we're supposed to be tolerant. It says, preach the word. This is again Paul to Timothy. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You see what he's saying? He's saying everybody's intolerant of something. You either be intolerant of God's word or you'll be intolerant towards the things of this world. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, I want you to be tolerant of God's word and intolerant of the things of this world. And what we want to do is we want to flip it backwards. And you know why? Because we all have desires. We all have desires. And a lot of those desires go against what God wants. And when they go against what God wants, we have to ask ourselves, am I going to tolerate this because I want it? Or am I going to be intolerant to it because God says I'm not supposed to want it? That's the question we're all confronted with in our church family and in our own hearts. This is why in starting point, we always uh, talk about our beliefs and our values. And the first thing I put on there that we value is the word of God as our authority. This is how we define our commitment to God's word. We believe the Bible to be the only inerrant word of God. It is our only ultimate and infallible authority for faith and practice. Show us anything plainly written in that book and we will receive it, believe it, and submit to it. Show us anything contrary to that book, however sophisticated, plausible, beautiful, and apparently desirable, and we will not have it at any price. That is what our arguments in this church are based upon. So if you come to me and we disagree on theology, that's fine. But if you disagree with me on theology because you don't like the theology that's in the book of the Bible, that's not fine. As a church community, our source of authority, our pope, our leader, if you will, is the words that God has given us through his book. There's only one book that contains the words of God, and that is the book that leads and guides this church family. That's what we're to be tolerant of as a church family. So as we look with all that in mind at verses 1 through 3, it looks very intolerant for our modern standards of tolerance. And in fact, it can almost even look racist. Did you notice that? Let's read verses 1 through 3 again together. It says, At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. Now, I don't believe this is racist because I don't believe it's uh, referring specifically to individual people. I think it's referring to these people as a whole and their practices. And the reason why I believe that is because uh, we know from Isaiah 56, 7, if we look before this, and uh, Mark 11, 7, looking, or 11, 17 after this, that God desired his temple to be what? A house of prayer for the nations. Not just Israel, but he wanted to bless all of the nations, and that includes the Moabites and the Ammonites. It does not matter what color, what race, what ethnicity you come from. God wants you to be a part of his family. He wants you in his temple. So that's not what it means. It does not mean that these people as individuals cannot be a part of God's family and enter the assembly. What it is saying is if those people are not willing to give up their practices, 
If those people are not willing to give up their ways, then they are not accepted into the church family. They are not accepted into the family of God. It's not you do it your way and I do it my way. No, we do it God's way. And we might sometimes disagree on what that is, but we all agree that we are going to do it God's way. And if you think you can bring in your old pagan practices and make us kind of mix a little bit of Jesus with a little bit of Buddha or mix Jesus with a little bit of Mormonism, mix all these things in, you're wrong. We cannot do that. We do it one way. We have one king. His name is Jesus. Amen. That's why I, I love living in, in the United States of America. I mean, when I see news stories, it, this is my favorite country. I, I'm born here. I'm an American. But we, if you'll notice, we don't have an American flag on this stage. You know why? Because in this room, our only allegiance is to the king of the universe, and his name is Jesus. And long after America crumbles, you know what will still be standing? The kingdom of God with Jesus as the king. That is what we believe as a church family. And that means that sometimes we're going to have to be intolerant. And the reason why God is intolerant of these people's practices is not because God's, you know, kind of vain and he wants everybody just to follow what he says. No, the practices of these people are just flat out evil. If we look at what some of the Ammonite and Moabite practices were in their religious uh, uh, ways of doing things that they wanted to mix in with uh, the way that Israel did things, it is disgusting. Uh, they would do child sacrifice as a, a way of worshiping one of their fertility gods. And it wasn't just child sacrifice as if, you know, that's not bad enough because it is bad just to kill a child for some sort of deity. But what they would do is completely and totally heinous. They would take an altar and they would heat it up to a temperature and they would put these babies on this burning hot altar and let them burn to death because the cries of the babies were meant to be a, a sound of worship to this deity. That's disgusting. They would turn the temple into a place of prostitution where you would come and for the fertility God to bless you, you had to uh, do certain activities with some of their, we'll call them workers of the temple. Uh, in fact, there's a, a scene in Numbers 22 right after the story that it references of Balaam where Phineas is commended for his zeal for God. And when you read it, you think, wow, that is hard to read because what he does that God commends him for is he kills two people. So he throws a spear through two people and God commends him. And you say, how could that be? Well, you kind of begin to realize what these people are doing when you realize it took one spear to go through two people. It doesn't take much imagination to know what's going on. And they're not just doing that in some dark room. No, they're doing it like right in the temple, right before God in his presence. And you see, that's what's going on here. The reason why God does not want us to tolerate these people, he doesn't want Israel to tolerate these people, is not because they're coming to God and they're saying, we leave all of that behind us. No, they're coming to God and they're saying, we're going to keep these practices. We're going to do these things in the presence of God and we're going to claim Yahweh. And God says, no, that's not going to happen in my place because these are evil practices. Now, as we apply that to today, New Testament church, what does it look like? Well, I think it looks like us being intolerant of sin in our community. Now, it's also true intolerant of sin in ourselves, but I've got to pick one focus here. And I'm picking intolerant in the community because we see Nehemiah do that in our text. He throws Tobiah out, which is rude. You know, you shouldn't throw anybody out of the church. And yet, if we look at the Bible, we see a lot of times in which Jesus and Paul commands us to throw people out of the church. And we do so because we cannot tolerate sin in our midst. Now, there's a very specific way to do this. Intolerant does not mean unkind. Now, you might, it's hard for us to separate those things in our mind because tolerance has become such a value that we think if you're tolerant, that means you're nice or that means you're kind. Uh, but that's not true. Sometimes being intolerant is actually the nicer thing to do for somebody. 
So when I say we're to be intolerant of people in our community, it does not mean we're rude to people. Like, I'm not just going to start calling out sins from the stage. That'd be kind of funny, wouldn't it? If I said, Ms. E. Thompson. And then I said her sin. You know, you guys would probably, we'd probably grow at first because everybody would want to see that happen, like Jerry Springer. But it's not a good long-term strategy. That's not what God is saying to do. No, we do, we do it kindly. We pray before we do it. In fact, when I see sin in somebody else's life, what I always want to discipline myself to do is pray that God would convict them first. I love how John says this in 1 John. He says, unless a brother is sinning to the point of death, you should pray to God and have God convict him. So in other words, you know, if you see somebody like doing heroin on the side of the road, you tell them, knock it off. You're going to kill yourself. But otherwise, what you should do is you should pray. God, would you convict their heart? And God, if, if, if I'm wrong, would you convict my heart? And in the meantime, I'm not going to gossip about it. In the meantime, I'm not going to talk to anybody about it. I'm just going to talk to you about it. I'm going to say, God, if this, is, if this is a sin, like I think it is, would you show up in their prayer life? Would you show up in their heart? And would you tell them that it is? And friends, I've done this probably three or four times with three or four different people. And it's worked three or four different times. And it is the coolest thing. It is the coolest thing to be praying for somebody and then to have them come say, you know, I was doing this and this and this and I'm sorry and I shouldn't have been doing that. It's like, God is good. If we'll just trust him. We should pray. You should also be praying for yourself. I also have a a rule in my own heart that I'm not going to confront somebody unless I can do it without passion. Because what happens to me is I get all tangled up. I'm a very passionate person. If I'm mad, you see it on my face. I don't hide it very well. And uh, my my tone is not always the best tone. And so what I want to do is, to the best of my ability, I want to pray and get to the point where I can say, hey, brother, what you're doing is wrong. Or, hey, sister, what you're doing is wrong. And not get mad at them when they come back at me. Because that doesn't help anybody. All that does is create a fight. All that does is create an argument. And I'm not the best at this. I don't think any of us are. Some of us have a harder time than others of us. But we need to have the right heart when we confront somebody for the sin that is going on. And uh, that is not an excuse for you to never confront somebody. (laughs) Because on the other side of that, I'm also not a very confrontational person. I don't like it. You know, it's not very comfortable for me to go up and say to somebody, hey, you're wrong in this area. I don't know anybody that really likes it. If you do like it, something's wrong with your brain. I mean, who, who likes just going up and saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong. But we must do it. Our community, our church family depends upon us doing that. That's how church families go from at one time being vibrant and full of life to a place nobody wants to come and full of hypocrites. Because we smile at one another and then we go in the corner and we gossip about one another. And we have arguments and division and we get used to it. You know, it's like a baby sitting in their poop. It's warm and it's mine and I like it. But <laughs> baby's poop's on my mind because I got pooped on and peed on this morning, praise the Lord. So you guys, you guys can't do nothing to me. I've already been pooped on and peed on this morning. But when other people walk in, it smells funny. <laughs> you know, they, get the, they get the feeling something's not right. And that's how churches that were once places that were life-giving become death-giving. We have to deal with sin. Uh, two verses that show us this in the New Testament would be the Apostle Paul, first and foremost, 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. I like what he says. He says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. In other words, what what, what this is for is not for people who don't call themselves Christians. If you're not a Christian, guess what? I don't expect you to live like Jesus is your king. I'm not going to tell you what your sexual ethic ought to be. I'm not going to tell you that you should be tithing money to a God you don't believe in. That's ridiculous. We don't apply God's law to people who are not God's people. It's not my responsibility to go out and point out their sin. Because Jesus isn't even their king. No, this is for people who call themselves Christians and are in our local fellowship. Verse 11, it says, But actually, 
I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? So when somebody says, Blake, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. Uh, what you need to know is if they are a Christian, they're actually wrong. We're supposed to judge one another <laughs> because we don't want to stand before God and allow him to judge us. I would much rather you judge me than I have to stand before Jesus one day and uh, he's going to judge me. And I'd much rather see you judge me so I can fix it now than stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment and face his wrath. It's much better if we judge one another. When somebody says only God can judge me, that should really terrify them. They don't know who God is if they would rather God judge them than me. Because when you stand before God, it's going to take everything in your heart for your skull not to melt off of your face in the presence of His glory. You think you're going to tell God why you did something? You're going to give God some kind of insight? Oh, thanks, Blake. I never thought of it that way. He's God! Now, before, before we do that, though, before we take these people off uh, and we, you know, we, we shun them, uh, we, we have to apply Matthew 18, which is what Jesus says. Matthew 18 says, if somebody is in sin, first what you should do is all the prayer I talked about, but then you confront them one-on-one. You notice how you do that? You don't, you don't spread it around everybody else. Hey, do you think what Blake's doing is a little bit wrong there or there? Did you, we need to pray for, for our sister Regina for what's going on in her life. And you ain't praying about nothing. You're gossiping about sister Regina, and we all know it. And so that's what we normally do. No, no, no. Jesus says, no, you go straight to that person. You've got a problem. As soon as your heart's ready, you go to them and you say, hey, I could be wrong. But when I read the Bible, I think this and this is going on, and I don't think that we should be doing this and this. Can you help me understand why we're doing this and this? And then, if they still don't listen, what Jesus says is you get one other witness. Just one. We're still not gossiping. We get one other person, and that person, you say, hey, am I wrong about this, or am I right about this? If they say, no, you're right about this, then the two of you go together, and you have a conversation. And then at that point, if the person still is unrepentant, what you do is you take it to the church. And the church will decide whether the person is repentant or unrepentant. And then at that point, we apply what Paul says, and we take this person out of our community. And that seems really hard, and that seems really harsh. But why do we do that? But we do it actually as an act of grace so that they will see what they missed out on. They'll they'll remember what they had in God and in the fellowship of Jesus, his family. And that they will want to repent of their sin and they will want to come back to the grace. And that is what we are to be, people. We are to be grace-filled people. Grace is not tolerance. You know what grace is? Grace is undeserved favor, which means somebody wronged me. I confronted them. They didn't take it well. They walked away from the family of God. They said some really mean and harsh things. But the moment... The moment they walk back through those doors and they say, I'm sorry, and I'm repentant, and I'm humbled towards God, we accept them like nothing ever happened. Because that's how Jesus accepts us. It's all about our posture. If you want to know what a Christian is, and I try to say this all the time, because I think we get a little bit confused on what a Christian is. A Christian is not somebody who prayed a prayer, and it's not somebody who does a certain list of activities. You know, I'm a Christian because I tithe, or I come to church on Sundays, or I read the Bible. No, it's not about that. It's, a, it's about falling in love with the person of Jesus Christ. You see him for who he is, and you say, I give my whole life to you, Jesus, because of how beautiful you are. Because you are the king of the universe, and I've seen it to be true. I am in love with the person of Jesus. And then you become a person who has a posture of repentance. Meaning, you say, Jesus, I am not perfect. There are a lot of commands I'm not following because I'm ignorant of them. I don't even know they exist, so I'm breaking them. Or because I have a stubborn heart. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. And so I keep sinning and I keep falling and I keep going backwards. But I want to follow you. It's all about direction. It's about progress, not perfection. 
And so you might just be going the right direction and in your spiritual life right now you're laying down on the sidewalk. You're not moving at all, but you're still pointed in the right direction. That's a Christian. But somebody who says, I know what Jesus says, but I'm just going to go the other way anyways because I want to. That's a person who does not understand grace. Part of grace, which means undeserved favor, is that Jesus is our king. Because we realize we're bad kings and queens in our life. The decisions we make keep putting us in the ditch. And so when we come to Jesus, part of the grace is that we don't have to decide what is right and what is wrong for ourselves anymore. And so we want to follow after Jesus Christ. That is what grace is all about. So if somebody doesn't want that, they wouldn't want our grace. I mean, just think about it uh, from this perspective. Pretend you and I are friends. Pretend we are friends. You guys are all my friends. Let's not pretend. But let's, let's for the sake of argument, pretend that we're, uh, you know, we're neighbors also. And uh, I notice one day I look at my garage and my lawnmower is missing. And then I look out and there you are mowing your lawn with my lawnmower. Now, I'm going to confront you because I need my lawnmower. So I go over there and I'm like, huh, this looks a lot like my lawnmower. And you're like, no, it's not your lawnmower. And I'm like, yeah, it's definitely my lawnmower. That's where my wife hit it with the car. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't hit a, the lawnmower with the car. She hit the garage, but she didn't hit the I'm sorry. God bless Taylor. I don't know where she is. I love her. Uh, but, you know, so we come out and you're like, okay, you're right. It's your lawnmower. And you, you're really sorry. I'm so sorry I stole your lawnmower. And I said, that's fine. Just bring it back over. Oh, no, I'm not giving you your lawnmower back. I'm going to keep using it. And I'll probably keep stealing from you when I want to. But, man, I am really, really sorry. Are they sorry? No, they're not sorry. How do you think of it in terms of marriage? Pretend, uh, pretend, this is a really dark pretend, but pretend your spouse comes and says, hey, I, I've been having an affair. I'm sorry. Uh, I met this person. I love him. I love talking to him. I love being with him. Um, and, and I just want to tell you, I'm so sorry that I'm having this affair. I'm so sorry. But I'm not going to stop. I was just hoping we could work something out where I could have both of you because, because I'm sorry, but, but I, you know, I'm just not going to stop doing this. Now, I know what would happen if I told my wife that. I'd get punched in the throat immediately. Because that would not be a working situation. That's not true repentance. That's not humbly coming before the, the throne and saying, I am truly sorry. Because when you're truly sorry, guess what? You change your direction. You change your attitude. And when somebody does that in our midst, we accept them immediately as if nothing ever happened. I was, um, I was at a, a conference this past weekend for church planters. I had to go because well, we planted and so it was kind of a training that they made me go to. And uh, I didn't want to go, but I was really glad I did go at the end. But there's a lot of time where we're socializing, and it's all these church planners, and so we're all really young, uh, except for there's this one guy that really stood out to me because he looked like he was 67, 68 years old, white hair, did not fit in with the rest of us, was not dressed in all the skinny jeans and all the things that these young church planners had on. And I thought, man, that guy must have a death wish to want to plant a church at this age. Uh, and so you know, I went and I talked to him, and uh, you can always tell. It's an older guy because they're doing it for all the right reasons. If I can be honest with you, us younger guys, we have a lot of ambition. There's a lot of mixed up and do I want to help people? Yeah, of course. But am I also kind of working for myself? And, you know, it's kind of like, a, you know, we're all trying to say, was your church bigger than my church or what's going on? Or my church is better than your church. It's kind of all the subtle things we're doing. But this older guy didn't have any of that. He, he, he was there because he authentically felt God called him to do something. And the type of church he was planting was really cool to me. He had spent 31 years as a prison chaplain. And uh, he said, I'm planting a church that is specifically for prisoners and sex offenders who want to come out of their lifestyle and, and praise Jesus and be a part of the fellowship. But he told me the reason for this is because when they are in with me in the prison system in the chapel, I see so much growth and transformation. But then when they leave the prison system, they go to these churches and they're constantly rejected by each and every church because of their past. And friends, that's a church that doesn't understand grace. So what we've got to ask ourselves is what we are tolerant of. And if you're the kind of person that would be more tolerant 
of an unrepentant person living a homosexual lifestyle than you would be of a repentant pedophile, then something is wrong in your heart. And I know that makes all of us uncomfortable, doesn't it? And guess what? It always has. That's why when Jesus was sitting with the tax collectors and the sinners, the Pharisees couldn't hardly stand it. And now we read that as tax collectors and sinners, and we think that's us. No, in our society, that's not us. <laughs> that's the people in the orange jumpsuits. That's the people who have done things that we find unthinkable. But they come to Jesus with a repentant heart. And guess what we're supposed to do, church family? We're supposed to welcome them into our fellowship. It is a shame that that man has to plan a church like that. And I just wonder, I wonder if God would be so good to us to breathe revival on this church family and we have people coming from all over. You know what I know would happen if it was truly from God? We would have people just like that walking in this door. And we would have to ask ourselves, are we going to show favoritism to the people who have it all together, or at least they appear that way? Or are we going to welcome everybody with open arms? With wisdom, yes, but with open arms, because they are a part of the family just like we are. That's true grace. And we actually get a great example of true grace in the Bible from Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. It's a great little story in the Old Testament. You should read it. Moabites, those are the ones that are not supposed to enter the sanctuary. And yet what God does with her is he gives her a book in the Bible. Isn't that cool? And not only that, she's not just allowed in the, the uh, assembly of God's people. She's literally the grandma of King David, the, the Israelite of Israelites, which means she's also in the lineage of Jesus. And here she is, a Moabite. And you know why she was accepted? Because this is exactly what she did and what we all should do. I want to read what she says in Ruth 1.16. She's talking to Naomi, who's an Israelite. And she says, for wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That's the kind of people that we accept full heartedly into this family. I'm willing to leave all of that behind. And I'm not perfect and I know I'm not perfect, but I've seen Jesus and I love him. And whatever he says, I'm going to do. I'm going to follow after him wholeheartedly. I'm leaving behind all my people, all my old ways, all my old practices, and I'm putting on as a new creation these new practices and these new people that God has given me. That's why Jesus, when his own siblings come and try to take him away from the mission, he says, who are my sisters and who are my brothers except those who are doing the will of God? You know why? Because we're not just a group of people who join together to hear sermons and sing songs every week. We are a family in God's uh, people, as God's people. That's who we are to be. We are united to one another. Now, if the band wants to go ahead and come up, I'm going to close with this by looking at Nehemiah's prayer in verse 14. Uh, Nehemiah says this. He says, remember me for this, my God. In other words, he's saying, God, if you don't remember me for this, nobody else is going to. Do you think the, the world is very excited about people who are intolerant towards sin? No, they're not. Even in our own church family, when you confront somebody, I can't promise it's always going to go well. Sometimes it might go terribly bad. The person might leave and never come back. But that's not why we do it. We don't do it for them. We don't do it for us. We do it for God. We want God to remember us. We want to live for an audience of one. I think it's very important to remember that this foreshadows to Jesus' cleansing of the temple himself. And you know what happened to Jesus a week after he cleansed the temple? He ended up dead at the hands of the Jews. Do, do, you, think, do you think that this is going to make you a kind of person that is loved by everybody? It's not. But that's not why you do it. You do it because we want God to be pleased with our actions. And then it goes on and it says, And don't you re erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Two quick things to notice here. He says, don't erase the deeds. In other words, God, if you don't show up and help, guess what? They're going to break it again because that is our human nature. If we don't have somebody coming in and fixing things for us, it won't take long until Nehemiah leaves again and everything's broken again. But I have good news for us, friends, in the New Testament. Our leader is not Nehemiah. He's, his name is Jesus. And he is alive and he is well. And the Bible tells me that he is still ruling and head over the church. 
And he constantly raises up people to lead his church family. You can read Ephesians 4 for that. And then number two is Nehemiah calls his actions faithful love. Now, this doesn't look like love in our culture. But remember, being nice and being tolerant is not in the Ten Commandments. And lying is not helpful. You do not want your cancer doctor to lie to you. You want him to tell you the truth, no matter how it hurts. Well, friends, a church family is just like that. When we have cancer in our body, whether it be our own spiritual life or the spiritual life of somebody else, we are not good Christians. We are not good brothers and sisters if we don't love them enough to tell them. So, friends, remember, remember that this is truly an act of love and that we're doing it before God and for God. And the Reformation never, ever ends. We will never arrive as a church family, so we must always be killing ourselves and killing the sin that is within us and within our community. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. Father God, this is a hard word. It's a difficult word. But Lord, it's so important. God, I'm grateful that you give us your Bible to guide and to shepherd and to lead us. And you led us to this text today to remind us to always be reforming the sin within ourselves and the sin within our community. And friends, if you would, take about 10 seconds, eyes closed, head bowed, and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father God, I pray that you'd empower us with your Holy Spirit to do what you've called us to do, no matter how hard or difficult it may be. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.